Welcome to the Artipop Podcast. As the founder of Artipop, I've always felt we live in a highly conventional era when it comes to motherhood. But also that change is near. Therefore, I created this podcast to give voice to different refreshing perspectives around motherhood and life in general. To empower you and all the women around you to trust their intuition. I've asked a journalist whose work I love Kaira van Wijk to host this series for you. Let's use our feminine energy to shape the future. I hope you're with me. Please enjoy. Thanks for joining. This is your host, Kaira. Today we're talking to Samira Rafaela, a Dutch member of the European Parliament, one of its youngest members. Since her appointment, she helped launch the Renew Europe Group for a strong, social and secure Europe. And she came up with the Women on Boards campaign, aiming to have at least 40% of non-executive director positions in listed companies held by women. In this episode, she talks about one of her biggest role models, her own mother. She shares her vision on gender-based discrimination, anti-racism, and how to implement this in a school curriculum how she keeps saying when being attacked because of her standpoints and her hopes for the future. Hi Samira, thanks so much for being here. How are you today? Thank you and I think it's great that we're having this uh, this conversation um, and it's, it's, going, it's going all right. First of all, I'd love to ask you about your own cultural background and upbringing and I was curious if it was clear from an early age that you would eventually be working in politics and women's rights? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, looking back, I think it was actually very clear um, from a very young age that I knew that social welfare was not equally divided among people. And I think from what I've seen also with my parents, um, who are both from a migrant background, I just noticed that it was not equal. Mm -hmm. And they had some experiences that had to do really with their cultural background. And I think that really motivated me also to be in politics and uh, to work on social equality and social justice myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Could you like name an example of maybe something that your mother went through that you saw with her that you were like, hmm, why is it like this, you know? Well, what I mostly saw is that, you know, she she was not always um, being being seen equally because she was a woman, but also uh, a woman with a uh, different cultural background. And she managed to be very successful now in the ICT uh, sector, but that wasn't easy because in the first place she really needed to fight, I believe, stereotypes um, and, you know, people really underestimating her. Um, And especially in a male-dominated world like the ICT sector. And my father uh, is from West Africa and he came actually from Africa to Europe to get a better life and to take care of his family. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, he never had higher education or whatsoever, but so he really, he really did um, 
you know, jobs for people that were uh, lower skilled. And, and therefore, I believe that he was also more vulnerable to discrimination exclusion, also given the fact that he was a, a black man um, living in Europe and uh, not not being in his own country because because the welfare there wasn't really really good to, uh, good to him mm-hmm. so yeah i've seen all those things and and i think that really influenced me mm-hmm. since a very young age yeah i can imagine yeah and also you said in an interview sometime you said your own mother is a person who always helped you pull through like also with your career and she's one of your biggest examples like what type of role model is she to you well i i think she's a role model to me because she really um fought hard you know and she she really showed me that you really need to fight for your own rights and you know, no one has the right to say to you that you are not good enough. And she took care of her children. Um, she managed to have her own career. Um, and I think I think in that way, she's really being a role model to me. And she always said that, you know, if you really want to become a politician or you want to become a director of uh, an organization, you can do that. And there's pretty much no obstacle that, that should... Um, that should not make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you actually feel like since you've gotten into politics, it's gotten better, like racial justice in the Netherlands, also in Europe? Would you say we've you've made or we've made a lot of progress, or do you think it's still going pretty slow? Well, I think it's it's actually pretty slow. I mean, I'm glad to see that that even the European Commission um, this year launched a anti-racism plan to combat racism, discrimination in Europe. And it really had to do with the strong push coming from the European Parliament and the group of members of European Parliament that I also was, you know, uh, part of. But um, I do think it's rather late. I mean, in 2019, I was the only uh, first Dutch woman with an Afro-Caribbean background being elected um for the European Parliament. And I think that's really late and that really says something about, you know, the debates that we recently had, that we had for all these years. Um, you know, to be honest, I'm still not the norm uh, within my own institution. And that's why it is so very important that we see Kamala Harris becoming now the first female vice president, but also the first woman of color becoming the vice president of the USA, because therefore um, she said that, you know, I'm the norm. And now many, many other women and women of color are the norm now when it comes to, you know, these very high level influential positions. And um, I think that, especially in the Netherlands, we are always making it a very uncomfortable debate when we speak about racism and discrimination, and that's really not helping the cause. Um, yes, of course, it's not fun to talk about it. I mean, of course, I don't think it's fun to talk about, but it's really necessary. And um, I also believe that there's not a lot of space to speak about, you know, generational trauma, generational pain. Um, and that's, I believe, a topic that we really 
need to touch upon and that we also need to have more space for um, in our educational systems. Yeah, totally. And you also talk about education, which I think is so, so important to have that like anti-racism in schools already. Um, what would that look like for you ideally? Like what would a program, yeah, what would a class like that look like? Well, I mean, if, if, I'm, if I'm looking back at, at my own education, mm -hmm. um, I remember that we only had like, I believe it was max two pages about slavery, mm -hmm. the history that we that we had with with slavery, and and there wasn't like much debate um, in my class about the topic. So you know, it's 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 not really significant. I believe that we should have very significant teaching about the history that we had with slavery and about the impact of that. So dialogues are very, very important to have um, in, in, you know, in all classes. Mm -hmm. And we need to teach young people to, um, to express their, their emotions and to express their opinions in an effective way. Also, when we speak about this topic, and I think that needs to be done much more. Uh, and also specifically the school books um, need to report comprehensively also about the topics um i hope that that will change in time and i know that there are now now several you know local projects in the netherlands uh, that are paying attention to it but it also has to do with you know more teachers with a different cultural background that are standing in front of these classes and that can really you know teach uh, young people from their own experience and from their own background so you also need role models in uh, in education yeah. um, that can do it differently. And yeah, I think dialogue and learning young people how to speak about this topic and just teaching them the facts um, is, is very important. Yes, totally. Because I mean, in the Netherlands, especially like a lot of European countries, of course, we have this colonial history, like so much happened there, of course. And uh, I think the other day I also saw on the news somewhere that a lot of people are like in their 20s, 30s, they don't even know what really happened in the Dutch Indies where they're kind of like, oh, I'm not really sure what happened there. I'm not sure if it was right. Because I can imagine it's an emotional topic and maybe also with kids, it can be, it can be, uh, yeah, pretty challenging also. Yes, it can be. And, uh, but, but therefore it's very important that you, that you start um, on a very young age and to be very open about it, you know? I sometimes notice that the conversation and the public debate, for example, in the Netherlands is a bit difficult because people feel personally attacked. So, for example, when when I say that I think that, you know, uh, we should have a government uh, officially uh, apologizing for the history that we had with, with, with slavery, then... Often people say to me, yeah, but what do I have to do with it? You know, they feel personally attacked. And then I'm like, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that is exactly why I'm I'm not saying that the people of the Netherlands should apologize. But I mean, our government, uh, our administration should do that because that's the political responsibility. I also believe they have. They have the public responsibility to do that. So it's very uncomfortable in many ways to have the debate in, in the Netherlands. And otherwise, we don't teach people. So if public statements are not being made, 
regularly enough. And if you don't see political leaders being very explicit um, in this, then you also don't teach people in your society. And that makes it very difficult. Like take, for example, the black, the, the black face uh, discussion. You know, it took so many years for our prime minister to recognize that, well, okay, well, maybe, maybe I should say something about it, you know, because in the first place, he just left it and he said, yeah, this is just a debate that society needs to have. Well, I don't think that's right. I mean, (laughs) basically, you are the one and our political leaders are the ones that, you know, should take up these discussions and show and set the right example, because I believe that otherwise we wouldn't have, you know, all these um tensed debates and and all the demonstrations the recent years if political leaders just would have you know take their responsibility and say for example seven years back well you know we should end blackface because this is not this cannot be part of our society anymore uh this is not what we stand for you know um yeah yeah so we don't we don't teach people enough yes i i I can totally see what you're saying because First of all, of course, racism shouldn't be a debate. And I think also, um, I think right now with the whole Black Pete discussion, people see it as something separate, whereas it actually has a lot to do with all of us, you know, in the Netherlands and with our history. So if you already get that in school before, of course, you can kind of see the link. Yes. And then maybe people will be more understanding also that, like, of course, this is not acceptable. So I think... Yeah, I think that's that's very important. Yeah. And like from what age do you think it would be a good idea to have these kind of classes with kids, for example? Well, I think the moment that, you know, young children showing their debating skills and I think the quicker, the better. I mean, I can imagine that that you can, you know, slowly start with with very young people, but but you can you can teach them in a way already to to be tolerant and to accept people for who they are mm-hmm. and you can already start to educate educate them in how for example they solve a conflict or how they deal with differences between them and and others yes so you can you can already you know start to to teach young people their debating skills and conflict solving skills um you can you need to teach them from home so there comes the responsibility of parents you can teach them from home you can teach them in school that that they just need to accept uh their their peers Mm -hmm. Uh, because i'm often very shocked to hear that very young people are already you know, sometimes discriminating their peers. I mean, I hear very sad stories from very about very young children that are already being discriminated, or for example, they're being called, you know, oh, that's black Pete. Um, it's mm. it's, and then I'm like, so where is that coming from? Or little children who are saying, yeah, well. I'm not allowed to to uh, to play with you because you have because you're black. You know, I, I I hear terrible stories sometimes about little children saying these things to each other. So there's a responsibility from home and uh, also responsibility at school to to start to learn young people to be very tolerant with each other. Because I also think that 
uh, young children often are showing the very good example to us uh, because they don't uh, if they if they if they're not being, uh, for example, indoctrinated uh, with these these polarized uh, thoughts, then you see that children. Uh, don't see the difference. They are just playing with everyone they like. I really love to see these very um, cute videos that you sometimes see on social media, you know, and how children are playing with each other and how they are loving each other and accepting each other. I mean, children can really teach us a lot, but you see on a certain age that they are becoming sensitive also for you know, the thoughts and the opinions that are being shared at home, but also in school. So they're also very vulnerable to, you know, polarized um, opinions. And, and, and that's something we need to take care of as, as, uh, as adults. Yeah. And it really starts young, of course. And I think a lot of children also kind of like copy their parents, like they're sponges, really. So they take on everything that they hear, you know, even if it's like a whisper. Exactly. How do you actually, you personally deal with like backlash or because you work on like so many pressing matters, which I can imagine can also be very disturbing, whether it's racial justice or women's rights. How do you deal with that on a personal level to like keep your sanity and keep your mind at peace still? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I think many people agree with me that especially people who are um, touching upon topics like anti-racism, um and discrimination that it can be very draining energy draining because Mm -hmm. um first of all you feel like that you always need to that you are the one always teaching people in your own environment whether that's you being the only one in school or you being the only one in politics uh especially when when you're not the majority basically trying to put the topic on the agenda and it can be very energy draining and it can be also lonely. So mm. the moment you get these these very personal texts, which I definitely uh, had, I remember that I wasn't even, it was only within the very few first months that I became a member of the European Parliament, I was being attacked very hard on Twitter, especially, and pretty much on all my uh, social media channels, because I was on a picture with Congresswoman Ilan Omar from the US, And um, there were some, you know, very populist and extreme rightist uh, people who thought that it wasn't correct that I was on a picture with her because they didn't agree with things she said. But um, I I wasn't aware that I would get terribly harsh attacks because I was on a picture with her. And basically because I said on Twitter, like, you know, I will decide on my own uh, with, with whom I want to share a picture. And then it completely backlashed and and I had like for three days only racist comments and and really terrible messages, but not only publicly, but also in my private email box. And I remember that that really had an impact on me. I even felt a bit censored. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't I wasn't sure anymore whether I could really express my opinion, especially on Twitter. I was a bit scared after that, but of course, no, not anymore, because I'm like, you know, this is my right. And that really helped me. So my mindset really helped me um, saying to myself, you have the right to be there and you have the right to have, to have your opinion. Yeah. Um, but you also need people in your direct environment who can really like help you. 
and and support you in the moment because if you don't have that you will you will be very you know stressed and you'll feel really really sick i remember that i never felt that way i was i was like completely drained and i felt very very uh like very ill uh, because of all the attacks that i got so mm-hmm. When you're being attacked, and um, definitely when you experience racism, that's that's very impactful. And often we don't we don't understand um, how it can be for people to come to constantly be the one that's putting the topic on the agenda, but not realizing that there are also personal risks. And I think you know if I didn't even experience the worst things, I mean, I have uh, political colleagues that have terribly, that are experiencing terribly attacks, you know? Mm-hmm. So how do you cope with it? Well, <laughs> you need to have a very strong mind and you need to be very convinced of your own, of your own mission. Because if you, if you don't feel, feel that, then, then they will manage to convince you that, you know, you're not important enough or that your mission is not uh, legitimate. Um, so, so that's how I'm dealing with it. Yeah, totally. And I can imagine there's also so many like these blind spots, basically, because there's not enough diversity at the top. So you're supposed to reflect or represent the whole society, but there's only like one group there. Certain things you will never really understand, I think, if you're like a white person or if it's only like one group of people at the top. Well, I always say that it does not have to do with, you know, uh, white people not having the opportunity or the permission anymore to be there or to be part of it. It's, it's, it's always about the balance. And I always say that when we speak about the topic of diversity and representation, there's not a good balance. It means that everyone can be there, but it cannot be, I believe, only mainly a group of people that, that look like each other. Yeah. So also when it comes, for example, men, um, then and, and they decide for the rest of society. Mm-hmm. I mean, there needs to be a balance and, and there are statistics and researchers that are showing that there's not enough balance in, you know, the top of our organizations, even uh, government organizations. You can see it now in politics. You see uh, only a very few uh, politicians with a migrant background. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to politicians of color, it's like it's like terrible yeah so it's it's about the right balance because we're, we're making legislation we're making legislation we are deciding about legislation so it means that we are deciding about um people's life it has like a major impact on people's life in terms of social injustice in terms of social equality economic equality so that means that that you need a diverse group of people raising the right questions mm-hmm. right yeah because if they don't if they don't participate in that very important decision making process like how can you guarantee that this legislation or these these new policies will work for the people that have not been part of the decision making process and it's something very logical i believe so i sometimes don't understand why we constantly mm-hmm. have the debate about diversity and then people bring in, yes, but it's also about quality. Look, that is an argument, that is an argument really that I cannot 
I really cannot hear it anymore, to be honest. No, because I can imagine it's 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 completely. I I do also believe it's a manipulative argument, because the whole point is that if you if you're making sure that the people who decide upon all these very important things, right, are diverse, are you, that you're making sure that you have men, you have women, you have young people, you have people of color, uh, you have people with disabilities. Um, you have people from the LGBTI community sitting at the table, then you're making sure that a lot is covered, especially when it comes to the experiences that marginalized groups in our societies have. And then you get quality. Yeah. You get quality because you have been working with a diverse group of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, a lot of people don't, don't understand the impact of that, I think. No. I was also wondering, like, what would you say is the main reason we still have less women and less women of color at the top? Yeah. I mean, it's a systematic thing, but it's all, yeah, well, it's it's also because people are still using the argument. So people with power who can decide, too many of them are still using the argument that, yeah, they're just not there. Or they don't invest in new recruitment and retention uh, methods, you know? So I think it really has to do with an organizational culture in many of the companies and governments, but also political parties that do still not have the organizational structure and the organizational culture um, through which people can stay and grow in the organization. Because it's often also a question of like, how do you keep people in your organization? So sometimes... I mean, you see a flow of women, you see a flow of people with a migrant background coming to these organizations, but you also see statistics showing and saying that they also leave earlier than other groups present in the organization. So we also need to research what exactly is the cause of that. Um, what are what are the, the elements in the organizations that exclude people from it? And um, I... I, so I believe that there's a lot of talent, there's a lot of capital outside these institutions, organizations and political parties, but you really need to work differently and you need to work with role models because the role models can can attract different people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have enough talented women, yeah. but really we need to break through this, you know, old boys network um, and, and it really try to invest in different way of recruiting and selecting people because it's really old-fashioned thinking to say they are not there or they don't have the ambition well they have the ambition but they're not always being facilitated also to take the job like for example the child care why is it so expensive in the netherlands like come on um we should see how you know we can work more with flexible hours um parental leave like you know why for example in in the netherlands okay the men uh fathers they they get some days extra now but it's not a lot really you know we need to change those things so that women can also have their own plan especially mothers that mothers can have their own plan so these are just you know a set of examples that that make it a bit more difficult to attract women but it doesn't mean that they're not talented totally yeah i totally hear what you're saying 
because women in Netherlands at least get four months paid child leave and men just a week, which I feel is way too little. So if you're competing with men for a job, this already puts you at a disadvantage. I actually read this article in The Atlantic, how the pandemic has amplified bias around mothers. So apparently there's this myth and there's research done by Stanford, I believe about this as well, how women can only be either a good mother or an ideal worker, where this doesn't really apply to men, I guess. So what policies do you feel should be in place to tackle this issue? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, well, first of all, organizations need to start themselves with trying to get different cultural organization. But I, I do think at the end, the power is with role models. Hmm. Really, if, if you get some of the role models showing differently, I, I really think at the end, that is the most powerful. Hmm. So that means you need to start with people at the top that are willing to do it completely differently. Yeah. And I, and I think I think that's one of the most strongest instruments. Yeah. Like, do you already have like a role model in mind that you're like, oh, she's a mother, she's a working woman. Look how she's how she's doing all of this. Yeah. Well, I I so much respect my own female colleagues in the European Parliament, and some of them, they have children, they have a big family, and they're doing an amazing job as a member of the European Parliament. They're really showing that they, you know, can do all these things. And um, I think that. I mean, for now, my most biggest <laughs> role model is Kamala Harris, definitely. Yeah. Also, from like a political standpoint, do you feel like maybe there should be certain policies in place, for example, for working women who've just given birth that we're now lacking? Yeah, well, I think parental leave needs to be more flexible, much more flexible. And uh, so also for fathers and um, so that they can, you know, help more and that they can also uh, spend more time with their children so that for example mothers can also start to work uh, earlier if they want to i think that's so and there needs to be like a better balance between you know work and life so working with flexible hours um that's that's i believe very important and um and and childcare, you know, we need to we need to change that. I mean, it needs to be more accessible for for many more families. Um, and we just need to have, like I said again, more female role models that can show that even though you are a mother or not, that women um, women deserve to be there also. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's very important. Yeah. Do you think we should work with quota when it comes to like women working mothers at the top? Um, quotas. Yeah, well, I'm I'm in favor of quotas, especially now, mm-hmm. because we just see that the statistics are showing that we don't have enough women in place, especially not in um, the top of organizations. So that's basically why next week I will launch my own campaign on women on boards. That's a directive. In the European Union, yeah, that the European Parliament already decided about the European Commission and uh, to have more, you know, women in in um, company boards, but um, um, it's being blocked in the Council actually, uh, and also by the Netherlands. So that's why I'm starting a campaign next week on women in, on boards to have the directive 
um, and just to accept this quota on a European level. Yeah, that's important. I think I think you kind of have to to like really like make sure that it finally balances out. I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. And to make it easier for working parents, do you think the responsibility lies with, you talk about role models, that's very important, of course, but do you think the responsibility lies also with companies or more with politics to really, you know, make it easier for working parents, working mothers? Well, I think it's both. I think, um, um, I think you know, we have the legislators to really make companies, for example, aware of the responsibility that they have. And if not, we can, you know, put in place legislation, like, for example, that make uh, companies uh, being more transparent also on the payment that they give to women and men, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that, you know, that's equal so that there's like equal pay for women and men. I mean, this can all be arranged through legislation. But then you also have the companies who need to, you know, have their own campaign and need to invest in in a better organizational culture that is way more inclusive for women, for example. So it, it comes both ways. And like, for example, with the discussion on quota, I mean, you hear many people, but also companies not agreeing with politicians and legislators deciding for them that they need to put in place quotas. But then I'm like, well, just make it easy for us then. I mean, take your own responsibility then. If you do it well, we're not putting that in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And yesterday was also Equal Pay Day, of course. Um, and you talk a lot about this topic. Why is it so hard to tackle this problem, you feel? Um, well, I think it's hard because there's also a lack of transparency when it comes to equal pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think still we have not enough female role models in the top of organizations that can help changing things, but also making sure that we see things differently when it comes to stereotypes, fighting stereotypes. Um, and there's just sometimes still a very traditional and conservative thinking in our society. Mm-hmm. When it comes to women working and women having ambitions. So, yeah, that that still sometimes is there. Yeah. It's not gone or something. So, yeah. Um, and, and therefore, you see that these systems and the institutional infrastructure is regularly still male-dominated and built also upon values that, you know, mainly facilitate men mm-hmm. and that's something that we really need to change and do you think transparency can really work to really be more transparent about that that we all know what our colleagues are making for example yeah i think it can work it can be an incentive also for uh employers to to think carefully about how they pay yeah. their employees so and i mean it's not that that you need to like, I mean, there's also something that's private, right? So it's not that you need to communicate it in a way that you expose an individual, but um, yeah, you can definitely give openness to a certain point um, that is very clear how men and women are being paid for the same work in the organization, the same function. I was also wondering, because you work for the European Union, Uh, What stands out to you about how women juggle motherhood and career or policies around working mothers in different countries in the EU? Mm, Yeah, you see some differences. Take, for example, the Scandinavian countries. Mm -hmm. There are way, some of them are way more flexible when it comes to working hours, but also parental leave, 
the work-life balance. So that's interesting to look at, actually. And um, in the Netherlands, we have, I believe now, the most women working part-time in the EU. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting to see these differences. So I, I think there are some best practices and it's very important that we exchange that also. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in the Committee on Women's Rights and Gender Equality that I'm in. Yeah. So we definitely speak about it. And I'm always very interested in what some of these Scandinavian countries do. Yeah. It's very interesting how they do it, yeah. Like in Sweden, for instance, where child leave comes down to close to seven months per parent. Yeah. So that sums up to over a year for both parents, which can be distributed between them to however they so desire. Okay, I have two two more questions for you. I'm going to try to keep it short. But um, when we talk about motherhood, we also have to talk about the next generation, of course. And you're the one behind the scenes, you know, who's pulling the strings. Um, I was wondering, how hopeful are you really when it comes to a sustainable future? I'm very hopeful. I mean, I see a new generation growing up now that's having a different uh, view on things in life. Mm -hmm. And um, I have hope that we will break through some barriers and that, you know, in a matter of time, women just can follow their dream and that uh, women are safe in the world and You know, that's a concern I, I have because when we speak about a sustainable future, we also need to make sure that, for example, generations of young girls and women are safe in our society and that they mm -hmm. that they can do whatever they want. But that that's still not there. Yeah. So I am worried about that. Um, you know, during this crisis, actually, actually the COVID-19 crisis, we could see that, you know, more women uh, w became a victim of domestic violence. Mm. Um, and, and still, till today, we see, you know, women struggling in politics, um, risking their lives in, in certain regimes uh, because they just express their opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe that we still, we don't succeed if, if still till today we see groups of women still fighting for their rights and risking their lives. And I'm, I'm worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. I do have hope that there's, there's a new generation seeing things differently and being, I believe, more bold and more focal. Yeah. But um, but we still have a long way to go, I believe. Yeah. We have to move forward, really. Yeah. Yeah. So last, last question. Um, if you'd look into the future, say, 25 years from now, what would you hope to have shifted for particularly mothers and their families? I just hope that it's not being such an issue anymore to be a mother, having a lovely family, um, and just having your career. Mm -hmm. um, I just hope that there's a society that facilitates that very well. So things go like easy and, and, and flexible. But I, I also believe that, you know, women should not be stigmatized or when they say that they don't want to have a family or when they say that they don't want to become a mother, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's very important that women just have the right to have their own identity and whether they become a mother or not, they all need to be supported in their career, in the dreams that they have. Yeah. And, um, and that's really what I wish for. And, and yes, if, if women decide to have a career, to have a family, then, then we should facilitate that in a way that they can also have their career and not, not, not having the thought about not having children because otherwise I cannot be ambitious or do not have a career. You know, I think both, both is not correct. Um, 
yeah, we should make it way more easier for women with all kinds of identities and with all kinds of roles in society. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think it was your colleague, Petra Stina, she said that it's going to take us another 60 years before we reach like full equality. So hopefully, but then we have to move forward, of course. I, I have a strong belief and strong faith in a new generation. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for this conversation today. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to know more about Anna's idea of the new motherhood, head on over to the pilot episode where she explains more about this. Please hit subscribe if you'd like to be notified when a new episode is up. Also, we'd be very happy to get your feedback and possibly suggestions for new topics or interviewees. Hope this episode informed, inspired, opened up your mind in some way. Until next time.